It is New Hampshire Authors Week here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, in partnership with the New Hampshire Writers Project. You can follow them at nhwritersproject.org. And we also want to thank our primary sponsor of the show, Northeast Delta Dental. And we're very pleased to have joining us today, Cynthia G. Neal, an American with Irish ancestry and a native of the Finger Lakes region of New York. She now resides in Hampstead, New Hampshire. She has long possessed a deep interest in the tragedies and triumphs of the Irish during the potato famine or the Great Hunger, as it's referred to. Uh, Cynthia, it is a delight to have you with us today here on WKXL. And how many books to your credit, Cynthia? Well, thank you for having me, and thank you to the New Hampshire Writers Project for this opportunity. Um, I have five historical novels, and I have four that are in the Irish Dresser series. And um, as you said, I've had a long interest. I've done a lot of Irish dancing, um, and I am Irish. Uh, and my series begins with a young girl in famine Ireland. It crosses the Atlantic in a dresser. She crosses the Atlantic in a dresser to survive. And it ends in New York City after the Civil War. And it really is a coming-of-age story and sketches out a young immigrant's passionate, courageous, and reckless, even, journey in uniquely becoming an Irish-American woman. Well, the uh, the writing that uh, you have done to date is uh, very, very intriguing and, and informative and uh, well-read, I know. And at what point of your life... Uh, did you know that uh, you wanted to be an author, Cynthia? Well, as you said, I'm a native of the Finger Lakes region. I don't know if you've ever visited, but it is it is yeah. a magical. I've been there. Yeah. Good waterfalls, not just to the racetrack, but <laughs> I hope, but to in Watkins Glen. And this is where I grew up. I grew up in a, a very small town called Odessa, New York, and um, as a young girl. I had a single mom, and there were many of us, children, and there was a bookmobile that came rolling into town that changed my life, and I would take out every book I could get, sometimes saying I lost the book so I could keep it longer and not bring it back, and I read voraciously and decided that after reading some of my favorite authors of the time, like Louisa May Alcott, George Eliot, Charles Dickens, that by the time I was 12, I wanted to be a writer. And um, I was so inspired, and I read these books everywhere, in my bedroom, beneath a tree, or in a tree, by a waterfall, and I became the characters. And I would forget who I was and where I was, and I wanted to write like these authors. And I, I love the quote, writing is an affair of yearning for great voyages and hauling on freight ropes by Israel Schenker, because as a kid growing up in a small town with a single mom, there weren't too many voyages happening, and I could go on those voyages writing these books. So that really, oh, I would do skits and poems. I would write them about 11 or 12, go knocking on neighbors' doors, take a friend along with me for courage, and we'd act out the skits and read the poems, and we'd get a few coins and cookies. So wow. that really was getting. And then I did a lot of, you know, as I, I grew, you, you have to make a living, you have to work, um, you know, with your writing dreams. And I worked as a freelance writer and, you know, wrote essays and some short stories. 
and it did a lot of other work. I don't know how much you want me to share. Um, well, we but, have plenty of time. I I, okay. I, I did want to, uh, to you know, it all began with a bookmobile for you. Uh, that's, yeah. uh, that is very interesting. And so, uh, and, and uh, that was inspiration for you. But uh, what inspired you to write uh, about the characters uh, that you have uh, written about in your novels? And, and how did you develop them uh, over time? Well, you know, I don't want to sound esoteric. There's a lot of work that goes involved in writing historical novels. But I have to say that my protagonists and subsequent novels really found me. You know, my characters have hounded me, and they've nipped at my heels until I finished writing about them. And, you know, people ask me, what do I do for a living? And throughout the years, I tell them that I work with the dead. This isn't morbid. <laughs> It really isn't morbid, for we're the sum of our ancestors. They want to speak. The Celts believe there's a thin line between life and death. And I've learned to listen, really listen. I'm somewhat of a, a late bloomer. And then I research like hell. Copious research, using primary sources out of print books. But there's a spiritual element to it all as well. Um, when I began my Irish Dresser series, I was um, dancing in an Irish pub in Rochester, New York. And as I was dancing, there was a picture, the famous poster, picture of an Irish dresser in the poster. And an Irish dresser is comparable to what we would know as a china cabinet. Uh-huh. Any poorest of homes, so everything would go on the, you know, of importance, of meaning. And in the 60s, you have Pope John and the picture of JFK. And there was this poster, and I'm looking at it, and there's a hen at the bottom, and there's a big cupboard at the bottom. And suddenly I was imagining a young girl living through the famine and dreaming of a better life and dreaming of food. And so my first book starts with her on a journey hiding in the dresser on a ship. I chose the name The Star, and later I found out that there was an actual what they called famine ship, called the Star, that brought over a family with a daughter the same age as my protagonist. But even more incredible was after I wrote the novels, the four novels, I learned there was a real Nora McCabe who came from Ireland during the famine. So these things happened. And then later I learned that my great-grandmother, Mary Sheridan, came to New York City after the famine at the same age as my Nora. Wow. My book is called The Irish Milliner. And I learned that my great-grandmother became a milliner in New York City. So it's as if I was channeling the stories of my ancestors and and my, my people, you know. And not to say this is so easy. I mean, I researched like crazy. And at the time, I hadn't been to Ireland um, when I wrote my first book, but later I did visit and just felt right at home, and I've visited many times since then. But there were many experiences like this, especially when I was going to, I felt like I, I I had to give up because I was getting so many rejection letters and I wanted to go on to other writing, and there would be things that would happen. Um, with these novels, and then my latest novel, Catherine, Queen of the Tumbling Waters, also had some incredible experiences I'd like to share. Um, 
sure. whenever you Oh, Would absolutely. Like absolutely. Well, we'll get to that in a moment or two. But uh, okay. you mentioned hiding in a dresser uh, coming uh, to this country. Was that a common thing at that time? No, 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 it wasn't. And in my research, I really looked to see if there were many dressers that came over during that time. And I, I think there were big trunks. And I think I did found one dresser that came over. So this was really, you know, my imagination, you know, especially when I was dancing, Irish dancing in in a pub in Rochester, New York, and just imagining this little girl, because I don't know about you, I think little girls, I think little boys too, really love to have a hiding place, whether it's, you know, a tree trunk, you know, um, you know, a place in the house, a nook in your, you know, under your bed, even, you know, you want special hiding place. And so that was what it was. And, and it, she was going through a tragedy. I mean, it was it was hell for the family and seeing death all around you and being hungry. And um, so that, to me, was this cupboard of hope. And in my novels, there's a lot of hope, no matter how gruesome the times were. And um, so, yes, uh, there were so many. There were 5,000 ships in six years that arrived in New York City. Wow. Wow. That, that is an amazing number. And uh, it, it just a, a fascinating story. And uh, we're glad that you could uh, bring it to us uh, today uh, here on the program, uh, Cynthia. And we want to delve into uh, your latest book, of course, uh, Catherine, the Queen of the Tumbling Waters. And we'll, we'll do that in just a short time. But what was your, your path to... Uh, the first time you had a book published, what was your path to publication? Well, after I had this experience, you know, being in the in the pub and dancing, you know, I had been writing. I had um, written some essays and, um, you know, did some freelance writing in Rochester, New York. And um, I was asked by the Irish Festival. They were having you know, the usual Irish, Irish Festival in Buffalo and in Rochester. And it was, I think, I think it was 150 years since the Great Hunger, and so they were really trying to educate people about what really happened, because as we know, it was a political famine. Um, there was food in Ireland shipped out before their starving eyes, and so I started researching and um, realized that there was really little I knew about the famine, so I researched like crazy. I just ordered books from Ireland, talked to people in Ireland, and um, I wrote a play called Indeed the Hunger about the famine for the Rochester and Buffalo Irish Festival. So I was working on this play while I I was doing research for the novel. And um, then the play was was really very well received and was powerful because at the festival you'd have these little children, you have a family, this, this family who was suffering to the famine, trying to decide what to go, whether to go to America. We had music, we had something, so there was some hope. But there, was, uh, there were children sitting in the front row, and they would they started crying because their acting was so good because they were kids. And these were, these were um, really, they were just people in the Irish community that I wanted to be a part of. And so it was so well received that we went to Buffalo and did it, and then a couple of days in Rochester, 
And then we moved to New Hampshire. And that was in the past, but then I continued researching and writing and thinking kind of eventually I did, after hundreds probably of research. Cynthia G. Neal is with us, author of historical novels, baker, naturalist, dancer, as we found out. We'll be back with more uh, with Cynthia G. Neal right here on WKXL. It's New Hampshire Authors Week. Welcome back to Kale and Company here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. It's New Hampshire Authors Week in partnership with the New Hampshire Writers Project. And we also want to thank our primary sponsor of the show, Northeast Delta Dental. And uh, we're joined today by Cynthia G. Neal, author of uh, historical novels. She is a a baker, as I understand it, a naturalist. And uh, you you talked about your dancing, even dancing in the pubs of Rochester, New York. (laughs) But uh, glad you could be with us today. Uh, Cynthia, uh, what what was the first book you had published, and and uh, how did it uh, come to be? Because it's not easy to get published. No, it was the Irish Dresser, um, Hope, and during the Great Hunger, called the Irish Dresser, and I probably had queried, I don't know, probably at least a hundred publishers over a couple of years. And I was doing other writing while I was doing doing a lot of dancing. Uh, we have <laughs> Irish dances, and our they're called Kayleys, which are Irish gatherings. And there's a lot of dancing and storytelling and music. We have a dance room in our home in Hampstead, and so for years we hosted Irish Kayleys. And so I was always busy, and I and I would get very discouraged. But every time I would get discouraged, you know, I would be encouraged by something that would happen and a serendipitous happening and, you know, dancing one time, just so discouraged because I'd had like three rejection letters in a week. And um, I remember turning on the music and dancing and no one was home. And I just lit a candle and I started dancing and dancing until hope came into my, came into my heart again and I could go on. And I have a quote that I use, hope dances in the darkness and believes in the lover who casts light at our feet. So eventually, I did have an offer by a publisher in Pennsylvania, and they do a lot of trade books for schools, young adult books. And so my first two books are young adult books, and they, the first one primarily takes place in Ireland, and then the trip on the sea in the, in the cupboard and in the Irish dresser. And in New York City, arriving in New York City, and then Hope in New York City, the continuing story. So each book, I didn't know I was going to keep writing, but I had to. Nora McCabe wouldn't leave me alone. And I suppose my ancestors weren't leaving me alone either. And so the second book, she's just trying to acclimate to a city after coming from very rural country to an urban setting where her people aren't really accepted. And pretty much, you know, it's it's. She went from the, you know, the frying pan into the fire, and uh, she is in Five Points, and the Irish are very much disliked. And uh, she meets Walt Whitman. She goes to Barnum Circus. She dresses as a as a boy, and she becomes a newspaper woman in Hawks newspapers like a boy. She meets a young man who's already had some experience 
um, living in America who had come from Dublin a few years before, and they become friends. So the third book, I continued on. She's a young adult, and Nora is the third book, and she ends up owning her own used clothing store. And I learned that Irish women, out of any other immigrant group, really accelerated in climbing uh, the economic ladder and, you know, just working so hard and striving and trying to hide that Irish accent. So she struggles with that because she still loves Ireland and wants to be Irish and wants to go back to Ireland. But at the same time, she is trying to acclimate and trying to find a place. And there's romance. She gets involved in the Young Ireland Movement to try to free Ireland from Great Britain because she meets, meets someone who is involved in this movement. And there's a shipwreck and so forth. And the last book is, so this, Nora was pre-Civil War. So the last book is Civil War, period. She's in New York City. She becomes a milliner. Uh, she gets involved in the abolitionist movement. She becomes friends with really the first Rosa Parks, Elizabeth Jennings, who refused to get off a bus and was pushed off. And she, along with the help of Frederick Douglass, um, was able to, uh, they, they took it to court and won. And so uh, the, the African-Americans were allowed to ride a bus if they behaved themselves, or public transportation, I should say. So she's friends with Elizabeth Jennings. And um, so that is that book and goes through the Civil War. And again, there's romance, a lot of history. So those are the four books in the Irish Dresser series. Well, uh, you've created uh, a lot of characters uh, in, in your writing career. Uh, do you have a favorite? No, I really don't. I feel like when I was, uh, well, I know, not feel like, but when I was working on um, the Irish Justice series is when I was being hounded. I was being wooed, I would say, also by Catherine Montour. Uh, my protagonist, real-life protagonist in my last novel. And there was a time I felt that Catherine and Nora, my protagonist in my other books, became friends. But it was it was difficult doing that research, and I wasn't really fully engaged in writing uh, this last novel, but I was doing a lot of research while I was um, writing the Irish Dresser series. Well, tell us about the, the researching process, because uh, your books are thoroughly researched. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I mean, that is, uh, that, that is very, very time-consuming. Uh, tell, tell us about your researching process. Well, I have a paralegal background, and I really excelled at, at the research, legal research. And so I just, you know, initially... You know, having being hounded, being inspired, having these characters come to me, and then um, having a general idea about the trajectory of the novel and a time period, and then it's it's looking, it's researching the clothing, it's researching uh, New York City in eighteen hundreds, the politics, the furniture. Um, so you have your storyline. And you want, of course, the history has to be a vehicle for the story, but you don't want to have any anachronisms. So you get you get a book on um, the everyday life in the 1800s, the writer's guide to everyday life in the 1800s, and you just, I just dig through it. I take notes, 
lots of legal pads full of notes. Um, I try to find primary sources. You know, I visit museums, put on the white gloves, you know, and go through documents. And and it's arduous, but I absolutely love it. Yeah. I really. And so that is sometimes, you know, my husband would say, haven't you done enough research? <laughs> and some, sometimes I think it might be a fear of actually getting to the story. Like, I'm so excited about the story. But writing the novel, actually sitting there and they're speaking and they're the characters are speaking loudly. And after you've done all this research, it's thrilling. And it's it's very, um, oh, it, 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 it being in the present is thrilling, and it's almost like being transported as well. And again, I don't mean to sound esoteric because it's a lot of work, but it also takes a lot out of you because you get done. It's like, where did I travel to? You know, maybe you only did three pages that day, but you felt like you went on this journey. So the research I find is um, calming and uh, and also thrilling in a different way, and and uh, also a learning experience for you. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So no, yeah, because you know I think it was C.S. Lewis who said we do not write in order to be to understand; we write in order to understand, and and that's it. You get the you get that kernel. And I'm going to talk about kernel of corn later. And you get that kernel, and, and you go with it. And it, it's a powerful kernel. It has so much life, like any seed. Isn't it miraculous? You know, you plant a seed, and and then all this green comes up from the ground. I mean, it really is. And so you get that idea for a story, and and that is powerful. But then you have all this other work to do, so it will grow, so it will blossom. No doubt about that. Our guest is Cynthia G. Neal, and uh, Cynthia is uh, with us today. And this is our Authors Week, New Hampshire Authors Week on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, in partnership with the New Hampshire Writers Project. And you can find out uh, more about the New Hampshire Writers Project at nhwritersproject.org. And uh, thanks to Masharie Chappelle for all the work she has done in uh, putting this week together. And we also want to thank our primary sponsor, Northeast Delta Dental. And we will continue with Cynthia G. Neal right after these words. It's Kale and Company on New Hampshire Authors Week, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Stay with us. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company right here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Great to have you along with us as part of New Hampshire Authors Week on WKXL in partnership with the New Hampshire Writers Project. And we also want to thank our primary sponsor, Northeast Delta Dental. And uh, today's guest is Cynthia G. Neal. And she is uh, an author of historical novels. Uh, she is a, a dancer, as we have uh, learned a baker, a naturalist, and a uh, prolific writer. And talk about uh, your writing uh, approach. I mean, uh, um, do you have a an outline that you, that you start with? Uh, do you plot it all out ahead of time? Or uh, do you create as you go along? What, what is your approach to what you've done? Well, I, as I said, before I get that kernel of corn, I get that gem, this idea, the inspiration. I get these characters that hounds me. And then I have it, 
and I let it sit for a while. But I start taking notes, and I usually do like a circle outline. Mm-hmm. So I have this circle, and then in the middle of the circle, I have the main character, the protagonist, and then I have the secondary characters, and and then I have just lines going out, kind of messy, and just write, you know, the the time setting and and where I want to begin, where I want it to end. So I do a general outline, pretty messy. And then I just start writing a little. And I've learned in the past, I would, you know, when I was very young, uh, I would write two sentences and I couldn't write any more sentences until I thought they were perfect. And I would write a paragraph and it had to be perfect before I get on and go on. And that is ridiculous because, I mean, it's understandable, but you have to just let it come and let it rip and just write. And then what you're going to do is you're going to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Um, and that just is, that's natural. That's the way it goes. And you eliminate, you kill off your darlings, they say. Um, and I've learned to do that. But basically, you know, I'm, I'm pretty messy. I, As I said, I have a lot of um, notebooks and a lot of legal pads. And, you know, I have different outlines. But I have the the best thing is I have that gem. I have that kernel of corn and that is, is always with me. And no matter how long it takes, um, it doesn't matter because I have that and I know I'm going to branch out from there. And then it evolves as I write and changes. Believe me, you you know, you think exactly you're going to have, this is what's going to happen. And it changes along the way. And you, you try to eliminate a certain character that keeps coming up. I don't want this character. I really don't want this character, but that character keeps coming up, even in the research, because my novels are full of, of people who lived in the past, real people, yeah. and uh, facts. And so sometimes I, it sounds crazy, but I kind of fight with them, because I think, this person keeps coming up in my research, but do I have to have him in the novel? Well, it turns out, yes, sometimes yes. Do you identify with uh, any of the characters that uh, that you write about or, or create, or is it totally the opposite? No, I, you know, I really, I really do, and I don't. And I think every writer, you know, when they write, they're part of their character. It just can't be helped. But Nora, Nora in the Irish Dresser series, Nora McCabe, she's impetuous. Um, she's a dreamer. She's a bit reckless. And I could say I've been that way. Um, and, but I wouldn't be as brave as she was, I think, and, and a lot of what happens in her life in the series. Um, for Catherine, I think the, say I'm a naturalist, I don't know how that got in there. I, I, I love nature, I need nature, I go to the woods almost every day. Um, but Catherine, the Native American and French woman, of course, has a relationship like many of the Native Americans did and do. Um, and and we're alike in that way. But other than that, I don't think any other way. So do you set aside, uh, I mean, uh, every author has their, their different ways, obviously, of going about things. Do you set aside uh, time every day uh, to write for a certain period of time, or how does it work with you? Well, when I'm in the midst of a project, I, I do at least a couple hours, and I'll change the mornings are always best. When I was younger, it was all. It was night. Nighttime was the best because you you have a family and you don't have time during the day. 
But um, right now, I've, I've been on book tour in Pennsylvania and, and upstate New York, and I've just returned to New Hampshire, and I had a, a book launch in uh, Exeter on Saturday. So I'm doing the marketing and promotion now, and I'm a bit frustrated because always you want you want to create something new. Not that writing blurbs and, and um, promoting yourself with that kind of writing isn't creative. It is, but it's a different kind of creation, and it's not my favorite. So I, I'm kind of all over the place. You know, I will go, I'll work every day, you know, when I'm in the midst of a, a writing the novel, I'll work every day. But sometimes I only work two hours because it just seems to take a lot out of me. Other times I'll go back, you know, later. You're always writing, even when you're not writing. I mean, I say go to the kitchen. So I'll stop because it gets kind of heavy doing my work and I'll go to the kitchen and I'll bake. And, you know, it's, it's symbolic, I think, because you have a good recipe and you have something delicious to eat. And with, um, with writing a novel, if you've got the good recipe, you're going to have a good read. And so I'll do that. And, and yeah, it's kind of, pers- I do procrastinate doing that, but I think it's good. I think it's good, except I'm older now and I don't know how many books are left in me. Well, uh, you, you've talked about uh, your a trip to uh, Pennsylvania marketing your book and, and Exeter most recently. Uh, what what have you found uh, are, are the best ways to get the, the word out and, and uh, market your books? Well, I'll tell you, marketing and promotion is, is really somewhat of a nemesis for me. Um, I've been doing, I've pounded the pavement for years. I've done conferences and festivals, and um, I've gone to schools with my two young adult books. And libraries have been great. They've been a great support. Um, and, and bookstores, uh, even Barnes & Noble and independent bookstores. And I query and um, I try to do a blog. And I'm involved in, on, in social media. Um, so, you know, you don't want to be obnoxious and put up every day on Facebook, you know, buy my book. And so I try to take different um different aspects of my novels and write about them in a blog. Haven't done that in quite a while, but it's very hard. It's very hard to get the word out. I have independent publishers. I've had four throughout my career. I have three right now and they're two of them are wonderful. They're very supportive. My last one is they're in California and they're all about women writers and women of history and they just, they're saying, what else do you have? Which is exciting for an author to hear. But they're independent. You know, they don't have a big budget. They're not one of the big five. And so they're, but they're accessible. And they're so supportive. And they work right along with me in creating media kits and, you know, sending out complimentary copies. And so that's good. It's good to have an, uh, an accessible publisher because I have friends who have one of the big five. Unless you're an A-list author... You know, you're kind of left on your own after the first year. But there's there's a lot you have to do, and sometimes it's very frustrating just um, writing up interview questions. Sure. And, um, all of it, just yeah. all of it. And I just say, I just wish I had an agent or someone, and I don't have an agent. I've tried to get an agent, but I can spend all this time trying to find an agent and not write. So, um, and I've written screenplays based on 
I've written screenplay series based on my four Irish novels, and I work with a New York City consultant, and I've really polished it. So I belong to a couple of online um, sites for screenwriting, and I've gotten some real interest. But what, when it comes down to it, unless you have an award-winning novel attached, it's very hard unless you know someone. And I've met some producers, and I have had some close encounters, and it's really exciting, including um, uh, doing a baking gig for uh, a psychic many years ago. Well, not many years ago, about five years ago. And I was going to leave, and um, after I set everything up and set all my baked goods up, and I was going to leave because even though I believe in psychics, of course, I just didn't know anything about this one, and I had other things to do. But as I was leaving, the psychic walked in. We immediately hit it off. And it was an incredible experience with the few people that were there. And even someone who she was, someone there who had lost a brother. And and she was talking to, to the sister about the brother who had died. And suddenly she said, Cynthia, this brother and you are connected. Wow. And I thought... She's got to be. She's got to be out of her mind. I mean, I'm from New York, and this girl's from New Hampshire. I've never met her. And later, I talked to her, and I said, "Where was your brother from?" And she said, "Oh, just a little town in New York." And I said, "Well, what town?" And she said, "Montour Falls." And I said, mm. "I'm from Montour Falls. What was his name?" And she told me. I said, "He was in my graduating class in high school." Wow. So this wow. like it has become a friend. It took a while. But she is, you know, she respects boundaries, and she's got, she's the real deal. And but she, one of the things she said, she had met me before. I had just started working with a New York City consultant, and she starts describing this project. She said it would be a success, and she said it would have. Of course, it's been five, six years later, and it's not happening. But again, anything possible. Maybe Julian Fellows from Downton Abbey, I think, would be good. <laughs> Well, Cynthia, we're going to come back and uh, we will talk about your your latest novel. And uh, you'll even uh, read us an excerpt from that as well. And we are joined today by Cynthia G. Neal. And uh, she is an author who lives uh, in New Hampshire. And it's all part of our New Hampshire Authors Week on WKXLNHTalkRadio.com through our partnership with the New Hampshire Writers Project. And we also thank our primary sponsor on the show, Northeast Delta Dental. We will be right back, so stay with us. We welcome you back. It's Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. A very special week for us here on the show. It's New Hampshire Authors Week in partnership with the New Hampshire Writers Project, and you can get more information on them at nhwritersproject.org. Again, we also thank our primary show sponsor, and that is Northeast Delta Dental. And we're joined today by author Cynthia G. Neal, and uh, she is with us today, and it's been a fascinating conversation so far. But right now, uh, Cynthia, we're going to talk about uh, your latest, which is called Catherine, Queen of the Tumbling Waters. And uh, tell us your, your inspiration for this book. Oh, okay. First, I'll tell you that it is a true story um, of a remarkable unsung Iroquois and French woman who lived during 
both the French and Indian War and the American Revolution. And she is known for leading her people to safety to Canada at the end of the American Revolution when General John Sullivan, who, by the way, was from New Hampshire, he leads a campaign initiated by General George Washington to destroy all Iroquois villages. And I would never think of writing uh, a novel about a Native American woman. Why would I, you know, a white woman who knew very little about the Iroquois Confederacy, even though I grew up in the area in New York State, and know some about the basics about Catherine Montour, why would I take on such an endeavor? Well, uh, every year I go back to New York because I have family there and friends there, and her name, Catherine Montour, in this certain in this county in New York State, and Montour Falls, which is named af- after Catherine Montour, it, it her namesake is everywhere, motels, um, parks, streets, and there is a trail called Catherine Valley Trail, and I walk it every time I'm there, and there's a memorial off the trail in Montour Falls. And I'd stop, and many years ago, I stopped there, and this is probably about 15 years ago now, and inscribed in Iroquois and English, it says, every one of you always remember this. Every one of you always remember this. And I would ponder it and think, remember what? I mean, we weren't taught in our schools really about the Iroquois, and I wasn't taught about Catherine Montour, and yet her name is everywhere, and I would feel I would always, I grew up feeling like there's something about this woman. But anyway, here I am as an adult, as a writer, and I'm, I'm visiting one day, and I read the scripture, I'm pondering it. Suddenly I hear a voice in my head, write my story. And I remember stamping my book and saying, no, I'm writing Nora's story, third book in my novel. Well, later that evening, I found a book about the Iroquois on a bookshelf, and I was reading about the corn, beans, and squash. They're known as the three sisters. In the morning, I woke up to make the bed, and there in the bed was a dry kernel of corn. Now it was May. It wasn't autumn when we decorate with corn hops. What a nudge. And it was the second nudge. The first nudge was the voice in the head. That could be debatable. So I have to say that through the years, and I become discouraged about writing this novel and doing the research, I'd have unusual encounters with dry kernels of corn. The last time was on a remote deer path in New Hampshire during COVID. Oh. I looked down, and there was a big old dry kernel of corn on this overgrown deer path. There aren't that many cornfields in New Hampshire like there are in New York. So, you know, I told this story to Masheri Chappelle the chair of the New Hampshire Writers Project, and she is a Native American seer. She explained to me that Native Americans' belief in these one kernel of cord, just one, was the beginning of life, and it provided the ability to sustain life. So Catherine, through the years, would give me these kernels of corn. I still have them. And when I did my launch on the very site of the village in May, I didn't know, but I brought the two kernels of corn with me, and I woke up in the morning. They'd fallen out of a bag, and they were in my bed. So, right, think about the people being removed from the land. Maybe they'd only have one kernel of corn, that that was the beginning, the beginning of hope. And so that's the beginning of me, you know, working on this novel. And um, a year after that first encounter, I'm again visiting New York, and I'm walking the trail, and I'm humming, 
And then suddenly another language flowed out of me. Well, my husband happened to call right then. And I jokingly said, jokingly, I was singing in the Iroquois language. He, the engineer, said, that's nice. Well, later that day, I went to an Amish farm and craft market in Penyan, New York. I was walking around, browsing, when I suddenly heard music like that was eerily like what I had sung on the trail. With a beating heart, I followed the music, and there was a Native American store owned by a Seneca Nation man. He gifted me with an owl necklace, and he told me I must write this story. Boston Irish Festival. I met. I was speaking and selling my books. I meet an author. He's written a book about General John Sullivan, who led the campaign to destroy the Iroquois villages. And then I didn't know he lived. General John Sullivan was from New Hampshire. And right at a time when I was really discouraged, um, I see a sign near Newmarket or in Newmarket saying General John Sullivan lived here. But the last one was a little over a year and a half ago. And I was at a restaurant, Ambrose Restaurant, at in by the bandstand with a friend. And I was sitting there saying, "What? there's something peculiar about this building. I feel something about the history of this building. And later, I looked it up and learned that General John Sullivan's son built it. So I just think that uh, I knew at the time this is where I was going to have my book celebration. And that's what I did on Saturday. And it's full circle because... It's beyond. Whatever happened, that happened. He led the campaign and destroyed my character's village. I have, how many years later, um, a, a launch and celebration about this Indian woman that I've written about. And in this very place of the oppressor, the father thinking he was doing good for the country. Um, it was magical there. Because in the beyond, it's over. Forgiven. But we're here now. We need to know the history so we can forgive, so we don't repeat it. So that is my experience, and um, I have much more, but I would like to read an excerpt. Very good. And the scene, this scene is after the American Revolution, and this is when Catherine meets Benjamin Franklin for the second time. Now, in my research, I learned that Catherine Montour, along with Iroquois chiefs, visited Philadelphia before and after the American Revolution. No, I did not find that she met Benjamin Franklin. However, it could have happened, because he was where she was, and she was where he was, and Benjamin Franklin was fascinated with the Iroquois Confederacy Constitution, and he had approached the Albany Congress in 1754, and he said, his words were, that if savage Indians could create unity in a constitution that held for almost 300 years, so could 13 disparate colonies, but they weren't ready. But he was fascinated. This, this, the Iroquois Confederacy Constitution at that time had been around since the late 1400s. So this is the setting where she meets him after the revolution, and they're in Philadelphia. And it's her, her voice. We sit in the London Coffee House on Fronton Market Street in a building with a large window facing the street. Mr. Franklin tells me it is a very popular coffee house, but one he will not frequent on market days. Out this very window on market days, my dear, one not only sees barrels of rum being sold to the Indians, but enslaved Africans being auctioned and sold. It is something I detest, slavery. But one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, I say. He removes his spectacles and dabs at his eyes with his handkerchief. 
I don't know if he is crying or he has the eyes of the old ones that often run. I believe it is because the old ones have lived so long with grief that it overflows without consent. Our bodies know our stories and try to care for them for us. But has Benjamin Franklin known grief? I'm sorry, my dear. I am old and seem to have no control over these eyes or the rest of my body for that matter. He laughs and then looks into my face with gravity. I see then he has known sorrow. Chief Tennessee said that the many arrows, many arrows cannot be broken as easily as one. And right now we're trying to bundle the many arrows of our 13 colonies together into our new country. Your new country. Our new country, Catherine. You and your people are also of this new country. I like the old country, Mr. Franklin, and have had no say in this new country. What Indian has? What woman has, what African has, that you are in sympathy with? Very powerful, very moving, and uh, cannot wait to read the book, Cynthia. And, Good. And the book is Catherine, Queen of the Tumbling Waters. And uh, I, I want to tell you, Cynthia, you have been uh, a delight to have with us uh, on, this, uh, on this day. And... Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, it is New Hampshire Authors Week, and uh, I, we all appreciate your uh, participation in the show, and uh, you mentioned uh, Ma Cherie, and she has been a big uh, part of it as well. So, so thank you so much, uh, Cynthia. It was a delight to have you with us. Thank you, Ken. You really helped me relax and, uh, and well. to share my story as a writer. Thank you very much. Well, glad to do it, and uh, Cynthia... Uh, we we wish you the best in in the years ahead. Thank you. All right, and uh, that will do it for this edition of uh, New Hampshire New Hampshire Authors Week on WKXL in partnership with the New Hampshire Writers Project. And we also thank our good friends and our primary show sponsor, Northeast Delta Dental. Join us next time right here, Kale and Company, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com.